my wife Carol enjoys black and white movies from the 30s and 40s. In fact, when my boys were little, there was a, a 1940s style song that came on the radio and they went up to her and they said, Mom, it's black and white music. <laughs> Just this past week, my wife and I watched a forgettable 1941 movie by the name of My Life with Caroline, starring Ronald Coleman. In this movie, Caroline is a person who's married to the Ronald Coleman character, and she is forever being unfaithful to him, just going off after other guys. And Ronald Coleman, in his uh, wit and wisdom, is wooing her back. The reason why I bring this up is that in the movie, uh, one of the friends of Caroline's says <clears throat> about her behavior, her unfaithfulness to her husband, it's positively antediluvian. Now that's not a word we hear much these days, and yet it made it into the common language of the 1940s. People knew what it meant or it wouldn't have been in a movie. Antediluvian, what does that mean? It means of or relating to the period before the flood described in the Bible. Ante, meaning before, diluvian, meaning flood, before the flood, the time before the flood. Um, and so, in the character in the movie who is saying that her behavior was antediluvian, it's like the people who lived before the flood and how they were behaving. And that's where we're going this morning as we continue in our series in Genesis 1 through 11. I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Now I need to tell you before we read the scripture that where we are headed, especially in the first four verses, are among the most difficult texts in all of the Bible. If you read a commentary on Genesis, you will get to Genesis 6 and it will say, these are some hard verses to interpret. Or perhaps they will say, this is among the most difficult of the verses in all of scripture. Or this is the hardest passage to understand in the Bible. Something like that. Nearly every word in verses 1 through 4 is debated. And so I don't mean to tell you that I'm going to solve that for you. I have a view which I will present to you and try to show you how it makes sense and some other views which I, uh, that, that people have, have put forward and why I don't think they make as much sense. But just know that where we are right now in this is that we will see corruption, antediluvian corruption. Before the flood, things are a mess. They are awful. Now, there's some things about the specifics of that that are debated. Everybody gets that. Sin was abounding. And we will see 
as we make our way through this text, that there is even a New Testament warning that the world that existed that was destroyed by a flood, the world that we live in today is not all that much different and it too will one day be destroyed in the judgment of God. So with that in mind, let's stand for the reading of Scripture. Genesis 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the land in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Please have a seat. You will notice that every one of my points this morning has the word antediluvian in it. Uh, you will be able to impress your friends and neighbors now with your knowledge of this new vocabulary word, the world before the flood the strange corruption of the world before the flood, the strange corruption. Now, we're going to head into some pretty heady verses here, but the main point of it is to identify that there is strange corruptions going on, strange corruptions. I'm thankful to Peter Gentry, who is the Old Testament professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, for much of my understanding of this passage, which has made some things clear to me which always had puzzled me, and so I'm in his debt in much of what I share this morning. One question that we have to ask ourselves as we look at this passage is, who are the sons of God? And some people will suggest that they're the godly line of Seth, and sometimes they're reversed, that the, uh, uh, the Seth line is the females, uh, the daughters of men. It, regardless, what they're suggesting is that the problem that's being described here is a problem of intermarriage. That is, 
the line of Cain, which we talked about last week, Cain and how he, his evil has somehow come in across the line of Seth, who was another one of Adam and Eve's sons, and that the two Seth and Cain's lines have intermarried, and that's the evil that's being presented here. But Cain's line does not have the monopoly on evil, and Seth's line does not have the monopoly on righteousness. As we'll soon see, all of the human race has a monopoly on evil. You know, there are, and, and, and the reason why this can be very problematic, we need to be careful here, is if we think of it as the intermarriage of two different human lines, that can easily devolve into a racist argument. There are some who have argued that the mark of Cain is that he was given black skin color, uh, that the design is the plan to identify black people as somehow less human and certainly less holy than other human beings. And nothing can be further from biblical truth. The mark of Cain, as we talked about last week, was a mark of safe conduct, a blessing, not a curse. The text is careful to distinguish the sons of God from the daughters of man, this idea of a Seth line intermarrying with Cain's line would have us believe that there was no male from Cain intermarrying with a female from Seth. That seems far-fetched. Other people suggest that the sons of God are heroes from a mythical past, tyrant kings, and certainly there's a lot of things in ancient literature outside of the Bible that describes that. You know, all of the, the Greek mythology, the Epic of Gilgamesh, other ancient fables suggest these ideas. But the idea of demigods is not something that the Bible suggests anywhere else. And one would think that that would be an evidence if that's what's behind this. Who are these sons of God? I'm going to suggest to you that they are in the category of fallen angelic beings. Fallen angelic beings. Uh, the exact phrase, sons of God, appears only three other times in the Bible. Twice in Job, where it refers to angelic beings. And once in Daniel chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar says, when I see four guys in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the the appearance of the fourth looks like a son of God. It's not to say that there's no father-son relationship between people and God in the Bible, but that's not the Old Testament way of saying that relationship. In the Old Testament, the phrase son or sons of God is used only of heavenly type beings. Further, we have the witness of the New Testament here, uh, and I'll kind of point out to you the bold and italicized and underlined here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. We went through this in our study in 2 Peter several months back, but here's the idea. If God did not spare angels but cast them into hell, if he didn't spare the ancient world but he preserved Noah, if he turned Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, but he rescued righteous Lot, 
Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You have to ask the question, well, where was it in the Bible that angels sinned? And it, you would search in vain for any text other than the one right here in Genesis 6. And so the connection between the sparing of the angels and the sparing of the ancient world, or uh, not sparing the ancient world, not sparing angels, not sparing the ancient world, cast them into hell, preserve Noah, suggests that these sons of God are in the category of fallen angelic beings. Uh, here's another passage, Jude verses 6 and 7. You have angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority. They left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains. Then the second example that he gives comparing false teachers to two events, first these angels, secondly, again, Sodom and Gomorrah, who likewise indulged in, likewise to who? Likewise to the angels, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Well, where is that anywhere in the Bible except here in Genesis chapter 6? So, what do we have in Genesis 6? It seems that this is what both 2 Peter and Jude are referring to. Namely, there are angels who did not keep their place, but instead rebelled against God's authority, and in that rebellion engaged in unnatural and against God's design, lust and passion, to the extent that they took as their wives, Genesis 6-2, any they chose. It says they took them because they were, the ESV translates it attractive. The word is in fact good. Uh, seems that they were doing something that they were just doing whatever they felt like. It seems quite possible to me also that the preaching of Jesus between his death and resurrection is what is in mind here in terms of what was spoken to these perverted, rebellious angelic beings. Look at 1 Peter 3, and we did go over this in our series in 1 Peter as well, that Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and then after he was buried, before his resurrection, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So it seems like there's again this reference back to Genesis 6. Now, you might say, well, Scott, you've made that so clear. How could anybody object to it? Oh, no, no, no. There are lots of reasons why this view is objected to. Let me uh, give you the first reason. Jesus in answer to Jewish leadership's question about the resurrection, said this, in the resurrection they neither, talking about the angels of heaven, uh, or talking about people who die, they, are, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like 
angels in heaven. He, the Mark account is virtually the same. They rise from the dead. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the argument is, how can you say that Genesis 6 is uh, referring to angels when we know that angels don't do these kinds of things? Okay, that's the first objection. The second objection is, if angels do not have flesh and bone bodies, how is that supposed to work that they have some kind of illicit relationship with, with women on the earth? And then third, if they take them as wives, do they end up having children? And are those children the Nephilim that are described here in Genesis chapter 4? That just seems really strange and far-fetched. Now, there are some answers to these objections. First, the question about whether or not angels have flesh and bone bodies. There are several places in the Bible where angels appear as men apparently indistinguishable from men. We're not all that sure about the material nature of angels. Genesis chapter 18, three men appear to Abraham and they eat with him. One of them turns out to be the Lord. The other two are angels who end up going to Sodom in Genesis 19. So we're not all that clear on exactly the material nature of angels. The second possibility which John MacArthur maintains is that these rebellious angels possess evil men. Now the text is silent on this idea, but it's not altogether an impossible one. Uh, let's read this, these two verses a little more carefully. It says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Angels in heaven. Jude says in Jude 6 and 7 that these angelic beings left their proper place. And so my suggestion is that these rebellious angels in Genesis 6 are doing what is wrong and evil and Angels who are not rebellious do not engage in such things. Angels in heaven do not do this. Note that the text of Genesis 6-4 is about the nature of these Nephilim who are not the product of angel-human interaction. It appears that this evil interaction of angels and humans maybe has produced children. I don't think it did. But the children that were produced are not the Nephilim. Look at Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 carefully. And it may be that the reference to the sons of God there is parenthetical. Let me explain that. And by the way, I might just want to add that because of the nature of this text being so difficult, I'm being more teachy than preachy, right? Right? We'll get to the preaching later. Okay. Here's one possible way of translating Genesis 6-4. <clears throat> I think it's faithful to the Hebrew text as I've examined it. 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So what that means is, whatever was going on with the sons of God and daughters of men, there were Nephilim before that, there were Nephilim during that, and there were Nephilim after that. Uh, Nephilim is just a word that can mean, uh, it came to mean giants. In fact, in Numbers 13, there's another reemergence of these guys that are called Nephilim. They aren't related to the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6 because everybody died in the flood. So there's no relationship there. It's just saying that they were the same kind of people. That is really big. Okay. And so the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. What kind of days were those? That is, the days when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. And then I'm going to say that in verse 4, when it says they bore children to them, that we should translate that, these Nephilim fathered children for themselves. Not that the sons of God and daughters of man had children, but that these Nephilim had children for themselves. They fathered children for themselves. One of the reasons why I say that is if you go back to chapter 5, you see this word fathered. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth. Verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh. All this fathered, 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 all the way through chapter 5. That's the same word that's used that's translated in chapter 6, verse 4, that says they bore children. And I think that it's rather we should say that this is a parenthesis. The sons of God came into the daughters of men, and the Nephilim fathered children for themselves, and that they were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. That would fit the Hebrew of the word that's translated bore children in the same way as it is translated in Genesis chapter five. Well, we might ask if we see that these sons of God are rebellious angels, who are the Nephilim? Now, one possibility is that they were the offspring of this unnatural union of angels with human women, but the text seems to make it pretty clear that this is not the case. The Nephilim were around before this angelic rebellion and afterward. The phrase, and also afterward, implies that the Nephilim were there before and after. Doesn't mean after the flood, it means after this rebellion of these sons of God with the daughters of men. Now, verse 4 does not begin with an and. And most Hebrew sentences begin with the word and in continuing things, and when it doesn't, it's telling us that... um, You're either beginning a new section or you're making a commentary on what is going on. It seems like what this is is a commentary. Verse 4 is a commentary on what's going on. The text is not telling us who the Nephilim were. Why? Because at the time that it was written, it was well known who they were. But it doesn't appear to me that they came from a union of angels and women though it does appear to me that there were wicked unions of angels with women in those days. Now, this idea that the Nephilim came from a union of angels and women has a long history. It got into an apocryphal book called the Book of Enoch. It's not a book in the Bible. It's a book that was written to try to explain stuff, and it got a lot wrong. 
The book of Enoch has a long genealogy of all of the angels until we get to Satan, and then all the evil is blamed on Satan and on angelic sin. <laughs> but to, pri- to blame the problems of this world on angelic sin and not human sin is very wrong. The entire thrust of this passage, as we shall see shortly, is to identify that it is human beings' rebellion that is at the core of all of our troubles. We don't say, hey, give me a pass, God, because it's the angel's fault. That doesn't wash with God. Paul even warns us against this blame the angels plan. Look at what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. I think he's actually referring to the book of Enoch here. Don't devote yourself to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. A little later in the same letter, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So, That's verses 1 through 4, the strange corruption of the antediluvian world. Let's look now at verses 5 through 8, God's opinion of the corruption of the antediluvian world. What does God think about this mess? First, notice the verbs in verses 5 through 8 having to do with the Lord. The Lord saw, the Lord was sorry or regretted that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved. He says, I will blot out man that I created. You know, it does not matter what we think about any given human action. Did you know that? Our opinion doesn't matter. We think we have the right to say that some action is right or wrong, But the only court of opinion that truly matters is what God thinks. And what he thinks of the antediluvian world, the world before the flood, is frightening. Notice it begins in verse 5, the Lord saw. What did he see? Well, note first that he sees it. He sees all of it. He sees every ugly, horrible, stinking detail of all of the sins of the people before the flood. And you know what that means? He sees every ugly, stinking detail of every one of our sins too. The Lord saw. He saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. You know, the sum of sin matters to God. There's a piling up. And this is true if you look at the history of cultures. The sin piles up and piles up and piles up until God says enough and that culture is finished. And we have to wonder about our own culture in those terms, don't we? The sum of sin matters to God. Notice next it says in verse 5, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not just, it's not just that man's heart is bad. 
It's not just that it was the thoughts of his heart, but notice the piling up here. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. (laughs) Do you see that God's definition of sin is so much more encompassing than ours? We can't tend to think, man, my heart, it's generally good. You say, well, what about the thoughts of your heart? Oh, well, once in a while, there may be a bad one that floats through here and all of that, you know. Then you ask, what about the intentions behind the thoughts of your heart? Oh, oh. Now we're looking pretty close, aren't we? That's how God looks. God's definition of sin is much more encompassing than ours. And when we think we're doing pretty good, we are actually a horror to God. This last phrase of verse 5, only evil continually, only evil all the time. The phrase in Hebrew has kind of a, a lyrical note to it. It goes like this, rock, rock, kol hayom, rock, rock, kol hayom, only evil all the time. So what is God's verdict? Verses six and seven. The Lord was sorry that he had made man. He regretted that he had made man on the earth. This is what we term an anthropomorphism. That is an expression that gives human emotion to a divine reaction. The emotion of God does not mean regret like we express regret. You see, when God says he regretted that he made man on the earth, he's not saying, oh man, did I make a mistake? That's not, that's not God's regret, okay? It's using a human way of saying things to help us understand the emotion of God. It's the expression of pain that the beautiful world he had made and the beautiful peak of creation, human life, had descended to such depravity as this. It grieved him in his heart. And so the Lord decides to wipe out everyone on the earth. Do you see it there in verse 7? Man, animals, creeping things, birds, all of it, I'm going to wipe it out. And then there is this huge contrast between his determination to destroy everything and verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There is, in his wrath, God remembers mercy. He's going to have grace. Not everything will be wiped out. Why not? Well, it's not because it deserves preservation. There wasn't anything particularly, we're going to see Noah's a pretty good guy, but there's nothing like you could say, okay, well, Noah, he's perfect. He's the right guy. No. Noah needs grace. It's the word favor there. It means grace. Not everything's going to be wiped out, not because it deserves preservation, but because of God's grace. It's God's opinion on the corruption of the antediluvian world. Now let's look at our last section, which really begins an entirely new section of Genesis. 
the sad and determined condemnation of the antediluvian world. There is one family who's going to be preserved. And this new section is introduced with this phrase, these are the generations of. This is a common way of marking out Genesis. You can organize or, or see the outline of Genesis by this phrase and similar ones. Look back at chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Chapter 5, verse 2, or verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 8, these are the generations of Noah, and so on it goes all the way through the book of Genesis as markers that divide the book. We are all also introduced now to uh, Noah's family. He has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, three sons, which shows just how righteous a man he really is. Those of you that know that I have three sons know the joke there. It's a joke. But Noah is described with three characteristics here in verse 9. He's a righteous man. That has to do with his personal integrity, right? His personal integrity. It says he's blameless in his generation. That's his community behavior, his reputation in the community. And thirdly, he walked with God. That is his personal relationship with God. So, personal integrity, community behavior, relationship with God. You might think, oh, well, that means that he deserved saving. No, he did not. Not if you read Hebrews 11, verse 7, which is the verse we began our service with, carefully. Look at the verse again. By faith, Noah. Not by works, not by being a good guy, not by being somebody who had a good reputation in the community. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he came, he condemned the world and became an heir of, he inherited, wasn't his righteousness, he inherited a righteousness that comes by, everybody, by faith, by faith, not by works, not by the wonderful things he did or what a wonderful reputation he had, by faith, believing God, taking God at his word, trusting in God's provision to save him. Notice in verse 11, the two characteristics of the earth. We saw the three characteristics of Noah in verse 9. Now the earth's characteristics in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. Again, the only opinion that matters in God's sight means in God's opinion. It doesn't matter what the press says about the world, doesn't matter what your peers say, it doesn't matter what you think, it doesn't matter what the government proclaims, it doesn't matter what the United Nations resolves. The only thing that matters in determining right and wrong is what the God of the universe thinks. That's it. And 
And God's conclusion is that the earth was filled with violence. People were taking matters into their own hands. There was no restraint. Man was doing whatever he wanted to do. Verse 12, and God saw the earth. Man, we've seen that a lot, haven't we? This phrase of God seeing. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 11. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. Verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so the grand conclusion is in verse 13, God has determined to make an end to all flesh. And he gives the reason to Noah. Look at verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Why? For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The earth's filled with violence through people, and so they're going to be destroyed in the earth along with it. So now we have to ask the question, how do we, how, what do we make of this very strange section of the Bible? First thing to note, God still sees. He sees our sin. He sees our violence. He sees our wicked ways. And no amount of renaming evil as good will persuade God of his righteous judgments. You can do all of the, you know, semantic uh, tricks that you want to play to try to say that evil is good and you're not going to persuade God. Human power thinks it is boundless. It is not. Violence is on the rise everywhere, even today, as is all form of sin, and God sees it, and the sum of it is piling up. We need a Savior. Without a Savior, we're condemned. And, and God will destroy the earth again. And this time it's going to be by fire. Uh, again, when we think about it, look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7 and verse 10. I'm just going to highlight some things. Scoffers are going to come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That's just like the world before the flood. They will say, where's the promise of his coming ever since the fathers fell asleep? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water. How? By the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Notice verse 7, by the same word. What word? By the same word of God, the word of God. 
the heavens and the earth were destroyed then, and by the same word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Destroyed by water then, it will be destroyed by fire. Kept until the day of judgment, the destruction of the ungodly. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God waited patiently. It says in 2 Peter 2 in the days of Noah, 2 Peter 2.5 calls Noah a herald or a preacher of righteousness. Now some people say, well, how long did Noah preach? And some say he preached for 120 years. Do you know, want to know where they got that? Look at Genesis 6, verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide or contend in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, some people suggest that that's a description of lifespan, that the maximum kind of extent of lifespan is going to change from the big numbers that you see in Genesis chapter 5, and it's going to, after the flood, gradually work its way down to around 120 being the maximum, that that's what's being described here. It also could be that God is saying, I'm giving you 120 years to repent, and, and Noah... 20 years before he even started having children, was building an ark and preaching a righteousness saying, the world's going to be destroyed. And God gave him 120 years. Either way, God waited patiently. And he waits patiently today. 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord's not slow as some count slowness, but is patient with you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, in any message, one question that you should ask yourself in any sermon, where do we see Jesus? Where is Jesus here? Sometimes that's not as easy to pull out. You don't just immediately run to some easy kind of answer to that question, but I'm going to point out where we see Christ in this text, because I think it's found in Peter's explanation in 1 Peter chapter 3. Here in 1 Peter chapter 3, I have underlined for you Jesus and what he did, and then in italics, something about the object of his actions, something about the object of his actions. So look at what Jesus did. First, he suffered once for sin. Who's the object of that? The righteous one for us unrighteous. He took our place. The wrath we deserve was taken upon him on the cross, and now we don't have to bear it anymore. And he's given us his righteousness in exchange. Second thing that Peter describes that Jesus did after he died, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He went and he preached. 
because they formerly did not obey. I think it's describing these sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. And God went to where they were imprisoned because of their rebellion, and he was telling them, your plan did not work. I will save from every people, language, tongue, and nation, and they will worship me. It's a proclamation of victory. Third thing, Jesus didn't just stay in the grave. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And what's the object? Every angel authority and power is subjected to him. He is the king. And that's where you see Jesus in Genesis 6, 1 to 13. Heavenly Father, we're more like those people before the flood than we want to admit. We want to say, yeah, yeah, they were bad. We don't want to say, yes, yes, I am bad. Forgive us of our arrogance. Forgive our culture for its arrogance to attempt to redefine sin in its own standards. You who see and are counting up the sum of sin will one day destroy the entire world with fire. And we need a shelter. We need a savior. We need a righteousness that goes beyond our good deeds because they are filthy rags. We need your son, Jesus. So God, for everyone here who's never put their faith and hope in you, in Jesus Christ, to forgive them of their sin, would you enable them to do it right now? Would you help them to turn from their sin and run to Christ and to say, God, I'm a sinner. You see it. You see how sinful I am. You see the intentions of the thoughts of my heart. And I need forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, that you, the righteous one, died for me who is unrighteous. I trust you and what you did at the cross to forgive me of my sin. I believe you triumphed over every spiritual force of darkness and even now is that you are at the right hand of God in charge of the universe. I trust you, Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who, do not, who already have committed our lives to Christ, forgive us for where we have lost sight of these essential truths. Forgive us of our sins where we have minimized them, thought of them as irrelevant or inconsequential. And help us even as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord to dwell upon the richness of his broken body and shed blood, the blood of Jesus that purifies us from all sin. Through Christ we come and pray, amen.